come to that time in the service where we're going to read from God's Word and then preach it and hear it and hopefully respond to it with hearts of faith. So we're working our way consecutively through Paul's letter to the church in Ephesus, and we come today to chapter 5, beginning at verse 22. Please hear God's Word. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their, their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Let him who has ears to hear, hear the word of God. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for bringing us here again today that we may join our hearts and our voices in singing the praise, the praises of Zion, the praises of the kingdom of God. We come to you, God our Father, in the name of God the Son and the power of the Holy Spirit. You are Trinitarian God. We, and we bow ourselves low before you. It is the desire of our hearts that you would be glorified, that you would be lifted up, that you would be praised, not only here today in our worship, but in our lives. So shape us, mold us according to your word, for we pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. So obviously, here in this section, we come to earthly hierarchical relationships. First, it's going to be marriage, husbands and wives. Then it's going to be parents and children. Then it's going to be slaves and masters, or to put that into common parlance today, employer and employee. And what do these things all teach us? They all teach us by way of summary that Christ is Lord over our earthly relationships. He's Lord over how you live as a wife. He's Lord over how you live as a husband. He's Lord over family. He's Lord over parents and children. He's Lord over your relationship to your employer or employees at work. Christ is Lord of all of our earthly relationships. Now, the passage we're headed into, which I remind you, began with these words, wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. Uh, leads me to speak first about the origin of marriage. I think it might be a good idea. Would you agree that it might be a good idea if we reestablish in our minds uh, where this whole thing came from, who made it, and so who gets to tell us how it's done? And so the short story, well, I already showed my hand, didn't I? It's God who made this. It's God who designed it. It's God who's Lord over it. It's God who gets to tell us how it's done. It's God who conceived of it, eternally conceived of it, and made it happen in time. And one of the most interesting, thrilling parts of Genesis chapter 1 is this. Let us make man in our own image, male and female, created he them. It's wonderful. It's beautiful. It's amazing. Male and female created he them, both equally 
in his divine image. The man with all his particular masculine attributes and the female, the woman with all of her particular feminine attributes, all of which are equally wonderful and equally necessary. And again, both full bearers of the very image of God, male and female, made he them. It is, it is God who made us. It's God who made us gendered. It's God who made us male or female. And it is God who instituted marriage. Let me show you that. We're going to read a little bit because I think there's no sense in hurrying here. This is important stuff. It's hotly contested stuff in our day. So let's dig deep a little bit and try and lay good foundations for all that we're going to stand on here. Let's look at how God instituted marriage. This is Genesis chapter 2. And we read, but for Adam there was not found a helper fit for him. You remember God created Adam from the earth, fashioned him, formed him, breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. Then God made a garden and put Adam in it. Then God made the trees to grow in the garden. I don't know how long that took, how fast did he make them grow? We don't know. And then God brought all the animals before Adam to see what he would name them. I don't know how long that took, but this probably all didn't all happen in three minutes, right? And so it was after all of that that then God said, um, it's not good that you're alone. I'm going to make you a helper who is comparable to you. Every animal you saw had a helper that was comparable to them. And you need one comparable to you. And so at that point, Eve is made sometime later after Adam is made, maybe quite sometime. We don't really know. And Eve is not made like Adam was made out of the dust of the earth, breathing the breath of life into her. She's made from a rib of Adam. So she's made in a different manner, made in a different process, and that means something. But we're not going into the, what that means yet. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. God was the inventor of anesthesiology, the first surgery. And while he slept, God understood, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, and you can paraphrase this, woo-hoo. That's what he said. He said, wow, where you been all my life, baby, paraphrase. Then the man said, this at last. What's that at last? Well, I saw all those other animals, and they were all in twos. It's been a while. I've been alone for a while here. But now this at last is bone, his rib bone, bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She was made from him. And then the man gets to name the woman. Boy, that wouldn't go down well in feminine cultures, would it? She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. The Hebrew words for man and woman, the word for man is ish, and the word for woman is isha. So we have something similar, man and woman. By the way, we had rabbits many years ago, and we named him ish, and we named her isha. And they were fruitful and multiplied and filled the earth. <laughs> we go on, therefore, 
Now here's God instituting marriage. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother. Adam didn't even have a father and mother. God's setting this up for humanity. And shall hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Well, what are we seeing in this? We're simply seeing that it is God who made us male and female. It is God who designed marriage. It is God who, you might say, officiated at the first wedding on the planet. You're the husband, you're the wife, you two are now one. God established marriage. And thus, here's what follows, he and he alone is Lord over marriage. He alone governs marriage, your marriage. And he alone gives us the instruction we need for our marriages. Marriage is of God. God is Lord over marriage. God tells us how it works. But of course, many in our day posit a, a different creation story, a competing creation story. What is it? It is called naturalism. And, and out of the naturalism creation story grows a very different and competing version of what marriage might be and what men and women are to be. So what is naturalism, briefly? The, it is the philosophy that nature is all that there is. Naturalism is the creation story, the philosophy that says... We all crawled up out of the primordial ooze. You've heard that phrase. And, and what we are is, is we are by historical accident, by blind and purposeless material processes of random genetic change and natural selection in which, curiously, there is no selector. But that is the creation story of naturalism. And flowing from it then, logically, According to the dictates of that creation story, marriage can be, well, whatever we want it to be. And marriage roles can be whatever we desire and whatever we engineer them to be. Because there's no God telling us, I made that. Let me tell you how it works. This is the view of naturalism. Marriage can be whatever we want to be. Now, in our day, you know, don't you? We're actually, we're seeing this thing played out like it's been building for a couple of hundred years, and all that building has finally really come into common culture, really come to its fruition. And our culture is right now hard at work seeing how many different ways it can define maleness and femininity, how many different ways it can define marriage, how many different ways it can talk about what a marriage is and how to do marriage. So there are these two competing creation stories and coming out of them, these two competing views of marriage. The one view in short, God made it so we do it his way versus we made it so we can make it whatever we want. Now we, and when I say we, I'm not speaking for everyone in the room necessarily, but I'm speaking for those who are a part of Cornerstone Community Church, are committed to the teaching of the word of God. We are a people who have come to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. And with believing in him, we have come to submit ourselves to his word. We accept his word the 66 books of the Old and New Testament, as the word of God. They are the words of Jesus Christ for us. I'm assuming that most of my hearers in this room today have come to a place in their lives in which you are absolutely submissive to God's word. Maybe not all of you, but most of you are. 
You have come to love him supremely, and with loving him, you have come to receive a love for his truth, a love for his will, a love for his law. Oh, how I love thy law, says the psalmist, and so do you. You resonate with it. It makes your inner parts jiggle. So consequently, we are delighted to bring our marriages to him and his word, and we submit our marriages to his wise and gracious sovereign lordship. And in these days in which we happen to live, where there is such a push in general culture to work out of the alternate creation story and create alternate versions of masculinity, femininity, marriage, we need to be very careful nowadays not to be conformed to this world, but to be transformed by the renewing of our minds. We, we need to work very hard to take every thought captive to obedience to Christ. We need to work hard not to follow the world in its cre competing creation story and its competing ways of doing marriage. And you might hear competing ways of doing marriage and you don't realize that goes back to that creation story. That flows out of that creation story. And let me pause and say, blessed is the couple, the husband and wife, who seek to do it in submission to the Lordship of Christ. Blessed. This is an aside, don't forget where we're going, but when I lie awake at night and can't sleep, and that happens from time to time, not a whole lot, but it happens. When I'm just lying there in bed and can't get to sleep, my go-to thing, I do this over and over and over and over, is I just start reciting, because I've memorized, I recite Psalm 1 to myself. How blessed is the man who walks not according to the counsel of the ungodly, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of the scornful, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. And in his law does he meditate day and night. And it goes on, but I figure if I start reciting scripture, Satan will hate that and he'll put me to sleep. All right, really, he has no power to put me to sleep. How blessed we will be if we bring our marriages to him. How can your marriage be a thing of wonder and beauty and joy and blessing? Well, when you bring it to God, when you submit to God and his teaching about the thing. So in what we're about to see, be ready, please, to bow, to bless, to delight, to receive. So with that background in mind, let's turn back to the passage. First, we're going to look at the command. There's a command here. Ephesians 5.22, and it simply reads, wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. And a little bit later, now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Submit, submit, submit three times. So there's no question about what's being talked about here. There's no question, what's the command? Paul, could you be more clear, please? No, he's been very clear. Here's my command to the wise. I prefer, however, the translation, be submissive, because it's a disposition of soul. And other 
Good versions choose to translate it that way. Be submissive. It's not just, well, if an instinct comes up, I will submit. No, it's be submissive. It's a disposition. It's an attitude of soul. Does this appear only here in Ephesians? No, there are parallels. In the sister epistle, Colossians chapter 3 and verse 18, I don't have this up there. Didn't want to make it that big. We read, wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Peter picks it up in 1 Peter 3.1. Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands. Same Greek word in all those cases. Now, I know that for various reasons, some of you might have a difficult time with this. You might have a difficult time receiving it. You might have a difficult, you're having a hard day already listening to me preach about this. And, and I, I believe that some of you might prefer that somehow I would basically explain this away. Maybe that I would even skip it. You heard about the preacher who knew he was coming up on a verse that's going to be controversial. And so what he did is he preached up to that verse and ended that sermon. And then he came back next week and he skipped the next part, started on the other side, and hoped nobody would notice. And indeed, that, kind of making it go away, making it mean something else, notching it down so much that when you're all done, it means nothing. That is the approach of some in our day. But we want to allow the word of God to speak into our lives, even when the word of God goes against the grain, the current flow of culture in our day. Like, think about this. So you and I were fallen but redeemed by the grace of God, being renewed in his image but still kind of messed up. And in the Bible, we have God's word. He's speaking to us. Now, wouldn't you expect, since this is God's word, that sometimes he would say something that makes you say, oh, that's not what I expected. Oh, that's going to be hard for me to take. Yeah, you would expect if he's God and we're fallen, though redeemed creatures, you expect that sometimes he's going to say something that isn't what exactly you wanted him to say. And if every time one of those things comes up in his word, you say, well, I got to figure a way around that, and people were doing that, then you rob yourself of hearing God's word, of letting God speak into your life and into your soul. So let's gain a little bit of clarity about what this word submit means. It's a compound Greek word. It is Hupa, which means under, and tasso, hupa tasso. Hupa means under, and tasso means stand. So, what each of these passages is saying, they all use the same verb, hupa tasso. It means stand under. Rank, it's, it's, a, it's a word of rank. It's used quite a bit in military literature in that era. And it means rank yourself under him. It's a, it's a term of rank. Now, I don't know much about military ranks, not having been in the military, but I know there's such a thing as a private, and I know there's such a thing as a lieutenant colonel. And if I'm not mistaken, I believe the private is required to rank himself under the lieutenant colonel. Well, the private might say, well, wait a minute. The lieutenant colonel lives next to me, which is, by the way, is probably not likely. But all right, he lives next to me, and 
I see, I see him kick his dog. And I hear him yelling at his wife. I don't respect that lieutenant colonel, and I'd be with you on that. But when you two come into the office on Monday morning and you're in uniform and the lieutenant colonel says, come in here, I need to talk to you, you better come in there. Because it's not about do you admire his character. It's not about you might be smarter than him. It's not about who's smart. It's about who has which rank and for the sake of order in the hierarchy that exists in the military and in the world, somebody gets to be lieutenant colonel, somebody else is private. There is order. We might do it in the same way with, well, let's think about, let's, let's think about, I know, let's think about the meter maid. I was going to say police. The police pulls you over and it happens to be your next door neighbor and he kicks the dog. You don't say, officer, I do not respect you. You may not pull me over. Get in your car and drive away. No, in, in this context, you need to stand under the officer, the meter maid. You've parked on Main Street. You went into Sunny Day. You had breakfast. You come back. Is that Main? Is that Sunny? Do I have the right one? Okay, thank you. And uh, I know there's a Sunshine Grill. That's farther south. All right, Sunny Day. And you come back out just in time to see the meter maid is writing you a ticket. And she's about to place the ticket under your windshield wiper. And you say, oh, wait a minute, I know her. And same thing. She's your next door neighbor. She kicks the dog. She screams. And you say, I do not respect you. I am not receiving that ticket. You tear it up and throw it in her face. Well, all right. Somebody's going to catch up with you. Somebody with more authority is going to call you to account. It's not about anybody's personality. It's not about, are you smarter than that meter maid? You might be, you might not be. It's not about that at all. It's about there, there is rank. The same applies in marriage. I don't know if you realize this. Here's like one of the big takeaways you ought to take out of this. Husband, you ought to realize when we get to husband as head, God assigns you a rank. It's not whether you want to be head. It's not I might be head, I might know. You are head. The only question is, are you a good one for the blessing and the benefit and the joy and the well-being of your family? Are you a good head? You are head. You need to understand, that's my rank. That's my duty. And as a wife, you need to understand, this is my rank. I'm to stand under and encourage his leadership of our family in the mission God gives us, be fruitful, multiply, and fill the earth. There is hierarchy. Man, that's not a happy term nowadays either. In this great leveling age, in this great egalitarian age, in this great equity age, everybody has to be equal. Everything has to come out equal, which is folly. But nonetheless, um, the idea that there is hierarchy in marriage would be anathema to many people in our day. They have a different creation story. They have a different plan for marriage. Another passage that plainly sets out this hierarchical thing, the hierarchical relationship of husband and wife, is 1 Corinthians 11, 3. I'll show it to you. Here it is, an important text. But I want you to understand, all right, those are important words. Paul wants us to understand. So let's all understand 
that the head of every man is Christ. So we're establishing, we're building a hierarchy. Picture it. There's Christ, and under him, ranking himself under Christ, there's the man. The head of every man is Christ. And the head of a wife is her husband. So there we're still establishing the hierarchy. Now there's Christ, and there's husband, and there's wife. And now we're going to go to the top again. And the head of Christ is God, meaning God the Father. So even God the Son submits himself to God the Father, even though they're equal in Godness, equal in attributes. Nonetheless, the Son submits himself to the Father, and the husband submits himself to God the Son, and the wife is to rank herself under her husband, and we could take it further, and the children ought to rank themselves under their parents. So here Paul uses the word head. Now head is a metaphor for authority. It's the Greek word kephale, it means head, a human head or an animal's head, but a human head. And it's a metaphor for authority. The the one who is head has authority. Just like in your human body. Which one has authority? Your big toe or your head? Which one kind of leads? Yeah, it's your head. How about your calf or your head? Yeah, it's not your calf. It's your head. Same thing here. Head is a metaphor for That's the leading part. There are, by the way, there is no shortage. There are people who seek to make the word head go away. Uh, Since I've been following this whole issue, and I've been following this whole thing since the 1970s, honestly, because it's intriguing, then whenever a new important book comes out on this theme from either side, I get it, I read it. I've got quite a shelf full of books on this topic. Uh, Who are the best scholars over there? Who are the best scholars? Let's read what they say. And they try to make the word kephale, head, mean source. Well, I can't get into all the technicalities with you, but they're just wrong. They're just wrong. Can I take a minute? This might be pedantic. It's late in the sermon. Can you live with a little pedantry? So, how to do a word study. Here's how you do not do a word study. You don't Google the word, what does this word mean? And then start reading responses. There are 8 billion people on the planet. You can be sure a thousand of them have written what they think the word means, but they don't know. So you need to be able to, and this would be hard for you, you might need help, talk to one of your pastors. You need to be able to identify who are the best scholars on this thing. There's a massive difference between the best scholar on an issue and the guy that lives down the street from you who wrote the article you're reading on the web. Just just to be brief, to tell you, when, when you want to do a word study, here's the, if you will, scientific way you do that. First, you go to a massive volume, biggest book I've ever owned. The thing is this wide, and that tall, and if we turn it around toward you, and that wide, and small print, and it's called Liddell and Scott, and it's a, it's more than a dictionary, I'll explain it to you. It takes a word, kephale, and traces its usage before the first century in classical Greek. 
So it's the dictionary to classical Greek. So the first thing you do is, well, let's go see all the background of this book. And they'll show you how Plato used it and how Aristotle used it. And there it is. And you have to know a little English and a little Greek to even read the thing. And there's how Cicero used it and et cetera, et cetera. So you get to see what's the background in that word usage. Then you're going to turn to one volume, Moulton and Milligan. Now that one's about that fat and large and small print. And it's going to give you a word and how it was used in the common language Greek of the first century when the New Testament was written. So what they did, they did a massive study in what are called the Greek papyri, little slivers of paper that are grocery lists and all kinds of other everyday things, receipts and bills and whatnot. These two scholars, Liddell and Scott, did a massive study in those things and they compiled it all in this huge book. It's huge. And you can look up Kephale and they're gonna show you important examples of how it was used in the first century common language. And then you're gonna to go to the New Testament lexicon, the best one, and the one I use most is Bauer, Art, and Gingrich. And that's a huge, massive book. And they're gonna tell you how it's used and what it means in the New Testament, citing a number of the different verses. And then you're probably gonna to go to Kittle's Theological Dictionary of New Testament Words, and that's 10 volumes, it's about that long. Pastor Jason has that set. Sometimes when we're having a Zoom meeting, I see it, or I have anyway. And, and that's a bunch of German scholars who can't be trusted because they're into that German higher criticism thing. They don't really believe the word of God is the word of God, but they're brilliant. And they'll do a lot of good word study for you about how the word was used. So you get their opinion. And then you're gonna take down your Englishman's Greek concordance. It's the one I have, that's the best one to have. And you're gonna look up every usage of that word in the New Testament. And then you can come to conclusions about, okay, now I think I know what that word means. And that's really how, like when I was in seminary, you had to study a lot of words and I've spent my life studying a lot of words. I don't even have to study many of them anymore because I've done it. And you go through all that and then you can say, all right, now I, I can say with, with confidence, here's what head means. All that to tell you, I can say with confidence, it does not mean source. That is just poor scholarship. Head means one having authority, higher rank. So Paul goes on, 1 Corinthians 11. For man was not made from woman, but woman from man. And that's in there because it means something. And it means something important. I'll leave you to think about that. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. So you can look at your wife and say, baby, you were made for me. And it's true. And then Paul goes on to say, and we're not getting into this one, that is why a wife ought to have a symbol of authority on her head. And then you get into the whole head covering thing. Let's not go there today, all right? But what is all this about? You notice the word authority. This is about authority. He's head you were made for him, he wasn't made for you, so he's the one who's over you. He outranks you in the marriage. He's the lieutenant colonel, you're the, let's, let's say you've been really good, you're not a private anymore, you're a sergeant, all right? This idea will resurface later in Ephesians 5. Let's look at Ephesians 5, 23. For, Paul's rooting some of his teaching in this, for the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. So Christ, I hope you all agree, is head of the church. He's over it. He outranks it. 
When we want to know how to do church, we don't hoist the moist finger aloft. Let's see, what would people like church to be? Oh, they want that. Well, let's give them that. No, you don't do that. You go to Christ in his word. There's ecclesiology in there. And you say, what does the Savior say his church is to be? And what does he say how it's supposed to be done? And we submit to that. That's kind of lost in our day, kind of lost in church culture right now. Right now, it's like, oh, we've decided we want to be that kind of church. You don't get to decide that. Christ is head over the church. So just as Christ is head over the church, so the husband is head over the wife, his body. Now, I just want to pause here and tell you. Let's see, how's my time? All right, I'm okay. How's, I want to pause and tell you. Some of you won't believe this. Don't throw anything at me. In every culture that we've ever discovered, in all of human history, every single one of them is patriarchal. Patriarchal means led by a husband. Husband led. It means, literally, it means father rule. That's patriarchal. It means father rule. Every culture we've ever discovered. Now, you'll go Google that and you'll find articles that say, oh, no, we've discovered cultures where the women rule. No, 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 read the fine print or it's sloppy scholarship. And the fine print on that is, no, there have been cultures, very few, that are matrilineal, not matriarchal, women rule, but matrilineal. What's matrilineal? That means that the name of the children is gonna go from the mother's side on down. And it works that way with the name. That's all that means. But in those cultures that are matrilineal, they're still patriarchal. Every society we've ever discovered is patriarchal. By the way, for those who wanna say, well, we're all the same. I want to know then, how did men pull that off? We hear all this today about the evil patriarchy. But in marriage, there is a divinely constituted hierarchy with a patriarch at the top. So the command is, wives, be submissive to. That simply means rank yourself under. By the way, I read, and I tried and tried and tried to find it, and I can't find it. I read a study that said they did a massive survey of American homes, and one of the questions they asked was, what would you say? Who leads in your home? And in, I believe the figure was, it's close to this anyway, in 90% of American homes, they said, he does. Isn't that interesting? After three waves of feminism, You ask American homes who leads, and they still say the man. Why is that? Because it's baked in. Because it's built in by God. Because we're made differently for different roles. All right, so that's the word. But are there any limitations to his headship? Oh, there are. Let's go on. Moving slowly, I know. Verse 22 again. Wives, submit to, to whom? Are there any limitations in this? Oh yeah, there's a huge limitation. To your own husbands, as to the Lord. Wives, submit to your own husbands. In other words, what scripture is calling for, what the Lord Jesus Christ is calling for, is not that one half of the human race should be submissive to the other half of the human race. Not at all. There's nothing in God's word to that effect. 
So that's not God's rule on this matter. It's not that all women everywhere are to be submissive to all men everywhere. No, Paul severely, strictly limits this. You are to be rank yourself under your husband. That's the only man. Unless you have a police officer, you better rank yourself under him. Unless you have your boss at work, you better rank yourself under him, etc. But rank yourself under your own husband. Not to anybody else's husband. Not to any other man, unless it's like your boss or a police officer. So this submission has a very limited scope. It is submission to your own husband. And then we get the manner, and it helps to notice the manner in the verse that's right there, as to the Lord. So in other words, in the same way that you are submissive to the Lord, you are, aren't you? Because that'll bring blessing down upon your head. So in the same manner that you're submissive to the Lord, so be submissive, rank yourself under your own husband. It might even be pictured like this. When your husband is actively leading, you kind of see the Lord Jesus right there behind him and above him, nodding. It's as to the Lord. I'm not really doing this for him. I'm looking right through him. I'm looking at the Lord behind him, and I'm doing this for the Lord. It's as to the Lord. Are you submissive to the Lord? Then rank yourself under your husband. And then a reason for, verse 23, next slide, thank you. For, so here's the reason why. For the husband is the head of the wife, we've already seen this, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. So there we come to that word head again. Just happens I'm reading a book on understanding human government. I've read very little about human government. I wouldn't say I understand it much at all, and I'm trying to remedy that here at this late point in my life. And I came across this little gem last night when I was reading, and here it is, quote, the history of the human race did not begin atomistically with a group of individuals, but organically with a marriage and a family, and the family has a head. So there we come up to that, the, the reason for this. Why should I rank myself under him? Because he is head. Who says so? God. Ladies, don't marry a man unless you're willing to, more than willing to, unless you trust, unless you would be happy to rank yourself under his wise, principled, beneficent, self-sacrificing headship. Don't marry him because he's cute. Don't marry him because you like his muscles. Don't marry him because he makes a lot of money. Marry him because you will be happy to allow him to lead as God has appointed him to do. And then we get an example, Ephesians 5.24. Next slide, thank you. Now, Paul says, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husband. Our example is the Lord Christ, as the church submits to Christ. And then we see in this the extent also, same verse, in everything to their husbands. In everything. In everything? Well, that's what it says. Are there any limitations? Yes, there are. We know that from other scriptures. There are limits. In Acts chapter 4, the apostles are told, stop 
preaching the gospel. Government told them that. They're to be submissive to government. Stop preaching the gospel. They said, sorry, whether it's right to you in the sight of, it's right in the sight of God or man, we cannot. We must proclaim the gospel. Sorry, government, we don't submit to you in that. You tell us to shut down, we're not shutting up. We're going to keep preaching. And in the same way, there are, there are definitely limitations to a, a man's authority, a man's position of head. So if a man is telling his wife, stop believing on the Lord Jesus, would you stop that? Stop following him. I don't like what it's doing to your life. Stop, would you stop going to church? Would you stop reading your Bible? Would you stop praying? Her answer is no. No. And there are many other kinds of, kinds of limits probably some limit one of you really wants me to mention right now, and I'm missing it. Sorry. I'm probably for your limit. So in everything, wives are to be submissive to their husbands, but there are limitations. Now, let me just ask a very personal question to the wives in the building. Are you doing that? And to the husbands in the building, are you such a principled, wise, beneficent husband that it makes it easy and she is delighted to rank herself under you? When those things are all working together, how blessed is the man? How blessed is the marriage? So, so there's our text. Now, I've covered six of 12 pages I knew Probably wouldn't get through most of this, but at this point, so I have to make a decision. Guess what we're going to do from here on out? We're going to talk about reflections. And the first section of those reflections on all this had to do with what is now called evangelical feminism. So that'll be interesting. But we're not even going to start there today, because if we start there, we're not going to get far, and then I'll have to shut it down because of time. The clock says I have 12 seconds left right now. So let's, let's finish where we began. We are redeemed by the grace of God. We are a people who want the will of God. Lord, whatever it is, speak, Lord. Thy servant hears. We've begun to hear some of the will of the Lord about husbands and wives in this section you say, well, you didn't say much about husbands. Well, it's coming. We're going to spend more time on husbands than we did on wives, so make sure you get your guy here, all right? He should be getting you here. He's the head. But anyway, make sure you get him here to hear those parts. But may it be that we're a people who love the word of the Lord. Let's bow and pray together. Father, thank you for bringing us to this passage in your word. Would you make the marriages of Cornerstone Church honoring and glorifying to you? And would you make them such a great, rich blessing to husbands and wives and parents and children? Oh, Father, may your Holy Spirit and your powerful word work mightily in the homes of this church. Would you fashion them and shape them according to your will? And may others in the world, fashioning marriage as they wish, may they look on and say, 
that looks good. I want some of that. Tell me about the Lord Jesus. Thank you, Lord Jesus, that where we fail as husband, where we fail as wife, we can come to you in 1 John 1, 9. We can confess our sins and you are faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And what wife in the room is not feeling some sense of her own sins and what husband in the room should not also be feeling some sense of his sins of weakness and headship and leading for self. So Lord, guide us as we consider these things further. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Would you like to talk to a Cornerstone pastor? Well, we'd be happy to talk with you. Easy way to get in touch with one of us, text pastor to the number on the screen. Let's take communion together. Pastor Stan, thank you.